Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Welcome to Career Crossroads. I'm your host, Jonathan Colleton, and on this podcast, I interview one person every week, and we talk about their career path. We try to find those crossroads moments that led them to where they are today in their career. This week's guest is Corey, so let's listen to what Corey had to say, and then afterwards, we'll reflect on it a little bit. Corey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know you have a very interesting story. I'm glad you're here to share it with people. So I think one of the things we should do right at the beginning is try and establish how it is that we know each other. But I always like to hear that from my guest instead of having me explain it, because that'll get really, really repetitive after a while. That's true. That's true. Um, well, thank you for having me. Um, possibly as a cautionary tale, but you know, we'll, we'll let the, the listeners be the judge I imagine there will be some cautionary tales on the show <laughs> at, at some point. Exactly. Um, you know, like driving by the Titanic or something. But, yes, uh, yes. Um, yeah, no. So uh, yeah, it's it's sort of uh, an interesting coincidence. Obviously, you work with my wife, but I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's definitely sort of interesting, I guess, that you came up with this idea. It's, it's I hope, helpful for people to, to have someone sort of share these experiences. And uh, I hope so, too. I mean, I know that we're going to get into it really shortly, that where you are now is probably not where you thought you were going to be many, many, many years ago. Um, and so... Before we kind of get into that, let's establish you at, say, 16 years old, when you're first trying to figure out who are you and what do you want to do. So kind of set the stage. What do you like? What influences you? Is it your parents? Is it is it culture? Is it music? What is it that makes you who you are at 16 years old? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so first of all, I fortunately had the same amount of hair, but it was a bit longer back then. <laughs> but no, you know what? At 16 years old, um, obviously going to high school. Um, in Markham, I, I grew up in Markham and that's a suburb of Toronto. And for me at 16, I was super interested in a few things. First of which is a lot of books. I was definitely reading a ton, you know, before bed, you read about an hour, mm -hmm. um, a lot of different stuff. You know what I would say, um, just a variety of different topics. I would read history books. I'd read philosophy. I'd read novels, all of it. Um, I love music. Um, I was, you know, I, I was playing bass. I was learning how to play bass, playing with friends. And another part of it too was uh, hockey. You know, I, mm. I'm Canadian. I grew up in Toronto and uh, a big part of that's always going to be hockey, right? So for me, that was sort of my big, my big three interests. Pretty much all three of them have stayed with me up to this point. So I, I would say at 16, I had <laughs> it sort of the haircut did not stay though. Gotcha. Um, that came off. Okay. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm glad I started recording this podcast after the Leafs were already out of the playoffs. So no one had to hear my sorrow over dealing with that this year. Yeah. The crying didn't, uh, didn't make it into this final cut. No, thing. exactly. It, I had a few weeks to get that out of the way before we started recording here. So, yeah. so, you know, knowing who you are at 16, what is it that you thought you were going to be doing right after you graduated high school or, or what was the, the long-term plan? Yeah. You know what? I think at 16, like a lot of 16 year olds, I don't think I really had a hard vision of where it was going to be. I think most people at 16 are, you know, in a vague way, you're thinking like, get a job, probably get a house, maybe, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, do something cool. It's like, but, that's what my parents did. So that's what I should be doing too. Yeah, exactly right. I don't think you're, you're, you're like super career minded. You're sort mm -hmm. of like in a general way, you want to be all right. Yeah. And so that's sort of what I had in mind. You know, I was interested in enough Things like, uh, you know, some sciences to be somewhat practical minded. You know, I don't think I, I had at 16 that dream to be um, something, you know, super obscure, super cool, like, you know, like a comic or something like, mm -hmm. you know, where you'd really have to prepare and, and sort of, you know, be an actor or something like that. So I don't think I had those types of really 
um, high shooting dreams. I think it was really, you know, just, just make it out of here. All right. Right. You know, do, <laughs> which is, I need stability in my life. Yeah. Do, do pretty good. And you know, don't, uh, don't, don't screw up too hard. Don't shoot for the stars necessarily, but don't, you know, don't shoot too low. Try to, try to do your best. Very even keel of you. Very even keel. You know what? Well, that's it. That's it. And I think it was, it was a good thing, you know, cause I think at 16, maybe that's the time for really dreaming big, but I think too, that, um, you know, by, by having sort of my sights set somewhere, you know, in the middle, it, it, it sort of worked out well for me. It, it, you sort of, you sort of had the ability to take it as it came, you know? Yeah. Okay. So high school is going to end and what's your plan? So high school's over and I am, you know, at this point I'm pretty, I, I got a few things on my mind. I know, and you know, I've done my research, which maybe is more than, <laughs> than I should give myself credit for, but I, I had sort of looked into it a little bit and I understood on some level that it was a bit easier to get a job with like a STEM degree okay. than it was with something purely in the arts. And like I said, I mean, I loved books. Mm-hmm. I loved reading it. Uh, you know, I, I have so much respect for people in the arts, people who who are able to do that. But, uh, you know, for me, when I was looking at it, it was really get a STEM degree and figure it out after, you know, it's gotcha. your ticket. Okay. So you really had thought that like separate work from passion sort of a hundred percent. Oh, okay. It was, I, you know what it's also, I mean, at at a certain level doing your passion as your job sometimes can be a little bit, it it can be hard, right? Yeah. People talk about that. You can lose your passion for something when you make it your full focus all the time. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And you know, there's some lucky few people who are able to do it and who are able to manage it. But uh, yeah, at 16 or, you know, even, even looking at the end of high school, it was sort of like, okay, in a rough idea, you know, you'd sort of want to be all right. You sort of know the way to get there is mm-hmm. maybe with a STEM degree, but what that meant in a practical way, I. Gotcha. Okay. So what did you end up studying then in the STEM field? Yeah. So this is, this is where it gets a bit weird. Okay. <laughs> so I, uh, I originally, I had planned to go into chemistry. All right. So I loved chemistry. It was, it just so happened, you know, I wasn't the best at math. You know, I, I was pretty good. I was good enough to do a chemistry degree, but you know, I wasn't awesome at that or physics or anything super mathematical. I wasn't really wanting to be a doctor, which is I think what a lot of people who do biology do. Definitely. So I sort of shot down the middle. It's like, well, chemistry is a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, it's sort of, uh, it's a happy medium between everything. But, but with no real end goal still, just knowing if you had that degree, you would get a good job? I sort of had an idea of like, maybe you'll work in a lab or maybe you'll do something in the oil industry. Because at that time, actually. Oh, that um, was booming. That was yeah. booming. You know, you sort of have, you sort of got a couple opportunities there, right? It's, right. It's sort of a STEM degree. Maybe you can go work in the oil patch. Go out west. Go out west, maybe. You know, yeah. I hadn't really thought it through that far. It was it was definitely something that was there, though. Okay. You know? Um, so anyway, so I'm at university. I'm studying. And I do the first year of all the prerequisites in the first few classes. I do fine. The second year, though, that calc course, I mentioned math. I'm okay. I got through the first year of calc. The second year... For a chem specialist, which is what I was at that time, yeah, it uh, it did not go great. <laughs> yeah, I can anecdotally my experience with math not super awesome either. Um, yeah. But a good story about that is when I was once um, I had a fifty at my midterm in a math class in grade ten or eleven, and uh, my parents hired me a math tutor, and I made a bet with them that if I could bring it up to sixty five by the end of the term could I get a flat screen monitor for our computer? Cause this is like 2005, something yeah. like that. They weren't everywhere. You still have those big CRT monitors. Right. 
my dad made a terrible bet and said, oh, if you can get a 65, I'll buy you a whole new computer. Well, you know, what really helps is if you have a 64 and talk to your math teacher about a bet you made with your dad, you're going to get that 65. Yeah, you're so. going to get that at 60. That's, I yeah, yeah I, got, I, got a, I got a new computer. So, <laughs> uh, But I definitely was not uh, a calc guy. So I understand the struggles you must have had. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, maybe I should have made that bet as a bit of a motivator, but um, yeah. I did not. And, you know, my wallet thanks me because uh, after that, I sort of had to look at it and, you know, it was either at that point, you know, I do this calc class and it just goes so badly actually that I couldn't really continue as a chem specialist because you need that requisite. You have to consider, do I redo this? And it sort of at that point gave me a bit of pause because I think at that point, you know, you're, you're looking at a specialist degree in a field and you're sort of like, okay, like it was maybe the first time where I actually sort of had to think concretely about what this would look like if I went through with it, right? Because at that yeah. point, you're really, you're doubling down basically on a field. And it's at that point where I was like, well, you know what? I was fortunate enough, actually. So I grew up in Toronto. I mentioned that, but I was fortunate enough to have a mother who's a Francophone. Oh, okay. And so I went to elementary school in French. And at this point, I'm thinking, well, you know what? Um, I've heard enough about teaching. And I've actually, at this point, I've been tutoring a little bit in sort of the side and I'm sort of thinking like, you know, if I had a French and I had a chemistry specialty, you know, and I had both of those, especially in Ontario where that's sort of a, you know, it's... Prized. Yeah, yeah. it's prized, you know. So I was thinking about that. I hadn't looked too, too much at like the job market for teachers, but I knew, you know, in some obscure way, my mom's a teacher. I have some aunts that are teachers. I knew that, you know, having a science, having a French, both together is a happy picture if you want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I sort of took a bit of a left turn, you know, I, I went there and I, I, you know, I kept on the chemistry enough to get the chemistry major, but I added in a whole bunch of French courses. And, you know, like I said, luckily, because I had a lot of previous experience with French, yeah, it gave me the opportunity to, to do really well with right. not necessarily a ton of effort. <laughs> yeah. So the skill set was already there and now you get a degree or a certificate or diploma, whatever it is, saying that you speak the language you already kind of speak. Exactly right. And Which is very beneficial if you do want to be a teacher. Yes, exactly. So that, that was sort of my thinking. And another thing actually that sort of went on while I was in university is I joined a fraternity. Um, and and that, that is not the most common thing in Canada. Definitely so not in Canada. How did that come about? What's so interesting about that for you? Yeah, well, you know what? So my father had joined when he was young and he's, you know, I'm, I'm It must have been more popular in their generation because my dad was in a fraternity in high school and that's oh, no, not even a thing anymore. I don't think that exists he's, at all He's anymore. got the jacket though in his closet still. That's so. super cool. Does it fit? Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't ask. He's him. not in playing shape like he was. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah he was game, the quarterback yeah, back then. He's not a quarterback anymore. <laughs> linebacker, uh, linebacker body. A little more. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Still for his, you know, for his age, he's in good shape, but he's certainly not in high school quarterback shape. I gotcha. I gotcha. No. So, um, yeah. So basically, you know, there, there's three boys in my family. I'm sort of the middle guy. So my older brother had joined when he went at this point, you know, my dad's in, my older brother's in, it's, you know, sort of a. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it like a foregone conclusion, but you know, at that point there's a lot of interest. You're sort of looking at it and it's like, oh, you know, my, my dad's in, my brother's in, they're both saying good things. So I tried it. You're and a legacy candidate. A legacy. I think that's the technical term. Yes. Yes. Legacy. You know, a legacy. It was a legacy. And um, it's funny because at the time I didn't really realize what it was about other than, you know, you're going out, you're, you're meeting people, you're drinking a lot of beer, but I Shocker. Think yeah, exactly. Shocker. I'm dropping, I'm dropping a lot of knowledge here. Yeah. 
Um, but what was really cool about it, and, you know, I don't think it has to be a fraternity. It could be a lot of different things. But what I found was that it sort of made you expose yourself to, first of all, a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, it put you in positions where you had to always be talking to people that you didn't really know, didn't have a whole backstory beforehand. People that are super different from you. Because one of the things that's really cool about fraternities, sororities, um, and I'm sure a lot of different clubs too, like I said, but they're all really diverse in a way that it's not like artificial in the sense that like, you know, they're, they're not targeting, you know, we need to get so many of this type and so many of that type. It's people from all over different fields, people from different backgrounds, people from every single, I mean, if you went to university, um, it, it's pretty much almost like a, like a pretty representative subset. Yeah. So what I thought was cool is you're going in there and you're talking to someone who's been studying architecture and it has nothing to do with anything that I'm doing, but you have to find some common ground with these people. And right, then, right. You know, obviously the beer helps a little bit and <laughs> it always does, <laughs> but, uh, no, it, it was really good for me. Cause I think that, uh, you know, obviously I was doing my studies. I had been able to learn a lot, you know, in French and, and, and in chemistry and you're doing that book side of it. But I don't think the technical knowledge that I gained there was really, for me at least, what was the most beneficial for my university experience, obviously getting the paper, the degree, um, was, was really important learning, you know, how to learn, learning, you know, processes, learning mm-hmm. how to get through tough assignments, learning how to write, all that stuff is, is very important in the academic side. But I found the social side of being exposed to different people, being able to, to be in a situation where you, you're in a room with people that you don't know and trying to somehow, you know, again, with maybe some beer, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but trying, trying to get something out of it, trying to sort of go into that thing and, and make it so that not only are you having a good time, but you know, you're drawing people in and you're, you're really trying to have um, like an engaging conversation, an engaging experience. And I thought, yeah. you know, that for me, at least, that was almost just as important as sort of the academic side. Oh, I definitely agree based on my own experience. Uh, so anyway, back to your, your academic side of things. So you're, you're doing the French and uh, chemistry at the same time then? Yes. Yes. So I'm running because the way U of T, the University of Toronto is set up, is that, you know, they're sort of on opposite sides. So I'm getting a good workout. Yeah, you know, going running across back campus. And forth, exactly right, between these two, two, these two things. It's like a gym class in between. Yeah, exactly right. Oh, great. It's a just like P, high school a minor again. PE, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, it was pretty good. But no, I, I basically was able to complete this degree. Um, so I got a double major in French, literature, and chemistry. And it, it was sort of interesting. It was like a right brain, left brain type thing. You'd go from a class where you're discussing, like, you know, the history of French literature and the you know, the 1830s when mm-hmm. they had these huge social upheavals. And then you're going into the next course and you're looking at, you know, the the different molarity and you're, you're looking at all sorts of different stuff um, on, on the chemistry side, you know, environmental chemistry. You're looking at just a bunch of, you know, very interesting topics there as well. And it, it was sort of cool that um, to, to sort of have the experience of both worlds and seeing sort of what they could offer. Yeah. All right. Now, any of the jobs you had in the summers or part-time during university, did they relate in any way to your degrees or were they just summer jobs? That's a good question. So um, so I, I mentioned that I was doing tutoring sort of throughout university. Right, right. Um, and I got sort of good at it, you know. Uh, maybe it was because my price was too low, but I had by the end probably about 15 or 20 clients that would, you know, come anywhere from once a week to sort of you know, once a month, something like that, or if they had to hmm. cram for for an exam or getting, uh, you know, some assignment done. So I had, um, I had sort of a lot of experience from that. 
And the other thing too is I, you know, I worked as a landscaper with with sort of the city of Markham. There you go. There's the job that yeah. see everybody has a job <laughs> like that. That you've got to have one job that's like just hard physical work that yes. teaches you the value of of maybe a degree so that if you don't want to do that hard physical work forever, now you've got the motivation to back it up. You know what? I, I found it was funny because um, I went in sort of thinking that that would be the lesson that I took from it. Oh, yeah. But actually, you know what? There Obviously, there, there's good days and bad days with every job. Yeah. But I found that, you know, that there's some nice parts about being able to work outside, um, about being able to see what you've achieved at the end of a day, you know, mm-hmm. go in and, you know, I was sort of mowing lawns, um, you know, cutting big fields of grass and like painting lines on soccer fields and stuff like that. Nothing, nothing super crazy, but... You know, at the end of the day, when you look back and you can literally see what you had done, there, there's a certain joy in that too, you know? See, now my first ever job was working at a golf course cutting grass. <laughs> and I started with raking bunkers, but I graduated to cutting the greens. And I can tell you that my lesson was not that at the end of the summer. I did not enjoy the 6 a.m. start time. And I decided that was not the career path for me. Okay. You know what? It's funny. Um, maybe maybe it was because I didn't get a lot of a lot of the bunker work. Yeah. Um, it was all fields, it was all grass, but maybe, you know, it's, uh, you know, maybe it had to do for me with that. That was like 16 the first summer I ever had a girlfriend and I had to be in bed at nine 30 every night so I could, uh, get up and go to work the next there you day. Go. No, maybe that dampened my experience with that. I'm starting to see the, the problem here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. So anyway, you're, you're wrapping up university then you've got your double major yes. and what's the exit strategy? What are you doing? You know, you're done at the end of April. And what happens May 1st? Yeah, it's a good question. So I mentioned that, you know, I look up to my older brother, you know, and he had done actually, I think it was maybe the second or third year of his university degree. He had spent a year abroad. Okay. And I had never really heard anything about it from anyone else other than him. But the program itself was sort of cool because what it was, it wasn't a degree program. You weren't getting credits. You weren't. It was not an academic program. But what it was, it was basically the French government would pay university students to come and teach English in France for, I think it was roughly their school year, which is about eight months to, mm. to, to a year, something like that. That's... Um... So I know I knew about there. There's jobs I know where the Canadian government pays Canadian students to go over and be tour guides at Canadian World War II sites in France. Um, See, that I didn't know. Oh yeah, they have I tour guides at, at Vimy and Juno Beach, and okay. uh, there might be other places as well. But that for me was like a dream summer job. Um, except I don't speak any French, so you know, right. really kind of dampened my ability to get that job. I I would have loved to have done that because that I mean I I love history. I actually I visited. Both those sites, you know, it's one of those places where you, it's weird. It's it's very powerful. You yes. go there and it just, you know, the story of the place. Yeah. And you, you know, the story of the sacrifice and all that stuff. And it, I, I I've never, I, you know, I've never really felt those types of feelings in most places, but you mm-hmm. go there and it's one of those things you, you, it's hard to, to sort of describe. Yeah, no, I 100% but, uh, agree. I was at Vimy for the 90th and the 100th anniversary ceremonies, and that was like a powerful experience. They were, that was awesome. Yeah, I would have, anyway, I would have loved to have these jobs. I wound up not getting that job. Um, I I was put basically into, I don't know if you've been to Paris, maybe you have, but basically the center of Paris is beautiful. That's where everyone visits. But around Paris, there's sort of a, 
I guess you'd call it sort of like a suburb and a bunch of little communities sort of around Paris. And they have, you know, to be charitable, what you might call a bit of a checkered reputation. Mm. Some of them are very nice. Some of them are very posh. But some of them are, you know, they're, 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 it's a place where a lot of people who are new to France go. Yeah. And it's like, you know, very impoverished communities. Yep. Um, and I made the mistake actually before going, there's a movie and it's called, it, the French translation called Hatred. But it's basically set in one of these little communities outside of Paris. And by the end of it, like people are getting shot and it's like. Oh no. It's not quite a gangster movie, but you know, you're watching this and your impression, it, it would be like watching, you know, like some sort of, uh, you know, like, like some, what was the name of that movie where they're, um, Ricky, you know, like uh, boys in the hood boys in the before, hood. <laughs> before going to LA or something, you know, you're watching this movie and it's like, oh my God, what am I getting into? You know, I'm, I'm looking at this and I've seen this movie and I'm flying out like the next week. And I land there and you know what? It wasn't like that at all. That's good because- It was good. Yeah, that's, you're starting to make it sound like, oh no, what have you done here? <laughs> well, it's funny. So the first day I arrived, I think I saw like a woman get her purse snatched. I see a truck go by with like a burned out car wreck on it. And oh, I'm like, great. oh my God, what have I landed in? Now are these, when you say these like suburbs of Paris, are they like, could you just drive straight in without realizing they're a separate community? Is it like a Toronto to Mississauga where if you didn't see a sign, you wouldn't know you left Toronto? Or is it, are they really like a little bit away where you're, it feels like you're entering a separate town? You, you probably would know just by the look and feel gotcha. of the place, but you wouldn't know. Like an urban like sprawl feel though? An urban sprawl. Exactly. Gotcha. I mean, you know, distance wise, because their cities are so compact, it was still only about 10 kilometers from like my house to the center of Paris. Yeah. But in that 10 kilometers, a lot of things can happen. It, uh, it changed sort of, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. So. Which, which, uh. If you're looking at Paris on a map, which kind of north, north, south, east, west, where was it? So I'm sort of in the north, I guess, northeast, sort of central, sort of north by northeast type thing. Okay. I happen to have stayed in the northwest in uh, a similar community and we didn't realize that until we got there. So. Yeah. You know what? And it was funny. Like my impression, like I said, I watched this movie and I went in and I was really thinking like, oh man, just like tough it out for the year. Um, You're doing this, getting good experience Mm -hmm. and- at the end of it, and, you know, not even by the end of it, maybe like by like the first couple of weeks, you realize you're, you're talking to students, you're teaching. First of all, my schedule was like the lightest job I've ever done in my life. It was like 12 hours a week. They gave me a house. Oh, that's not bad. No, no, no. So it was awesome. I mean, you're like, like I said, about 10 kilometers from Paris, you jump on the subway, you're in there. And because it was a teacher, they gave me a car, they gave me free access to like all of these different monuments. So I'm like, I'm living the life. I'm so jealous right now. I really should have (laughs) practiced my French better in high school. Well, yeah, no. So I love it. And the thing is, it was funny. So because that neighborhood has such a bad reputation, there was actually, so I had a house and it was literally two stories. There was like a bedroom and a bathroom in each one. And there was supposed to be someone staying with me. He was supposed to be, I think he was supposed to be uh, like a Spanish assistant. Yeah. And they had heard they were being assigned to this town. And they were like, yeah, there's no way I'm going there. And they they pretty much right before the start of the year, they they ducked out. And because of that, instead of having, you know, two people sharing a two-bedroom house, it was me living in a two-bedroom house. And I had a bunch of friends visit. It was awesome. Not bad. Yeah. Okay. So you do that for the year and it's a one-year contract, you said, one right? One-year contract. So your contract's going to end and was your plan to come back, to stay? What were you going to do? You know what? It's funny. So I was thinking by the end, like, should I re-up for another year? Because they had that option. I was thinking about it and I figured I'd come back, try the job market. So maybe in the last month or two, I started talking to recruiters. 
At this point, um, you know, I mentioned I had been looking at teaching and what I had found, and I don't know if the situation is still the same now, but basically the, the teaching market was completely saturated. Yeah. Even if you had these types of degrees, it was, it was going to be difficult. You'd probably have to be doing subbing for a few years. Um, it, it was something that I was looking at and I was thinking, you know, do I have the patience? Do I have what it, you know, the wherewithal to sort of be, you know, four or five years in this type of no man's land between mm -hmm. you're done university and you're, you're working full time at a, at a, you know, a job in a school, which is, was sort of my end target at that time. So I looked at that and I'm like, well, you know what? Like, let me talk to recruiters. Let me see what's out there. Um, I hadn't committed to like a teacher's college. I hadn't done anything like that. So I was sort of like, you know, let me, let me see what's available. So I, I called a few people and there's an agency in Toronto and I happened to go to them and, you know, within literally, I think I landed somewhere like mid July by, you know, the, the, the day after the August long weekend, I was already working, um, as a call center rep. Okay. So and, yeah. <laughs> and, and that was, was that just a temp job or was that something you were looking at as kind of a maybe long-term thing? So it was with sort of a, like an auto manufacturer. Okay. So they were looking for people who had French English bilingual skills to be, um, you know, to, to be like a phone rep for when people call in, they have a question. And so I was very lucky actually. So the week before I got the job interview there, someone who had been on permanent, so they, you know, they have the job with the benefits, they have all that stuff. Mm -hmm. They had actually just quit. And so when I went for my job interview, instead of interviewing for what I thought was like a temp position, it was actually for like a full-time permanent oh, that position. that is lucky. Super lucky. Because, you know, even at this company, a lot of good people, people better than I was, um, they they interviewed and they had to sort of do like a year of like a contract yeah. before they would be considered for like a permanent job. But I went in and, you know, just because someone had quit literally the week before and they're looking to fill that hole, it's like, all right, well, you know, you're you're in. So it wow. was awesome. That worked out pretty well. Yeah. You know what? It, it, in, in the whole time, you know, like it's, it's funny, the role luck played in people's lives and sort yeah. of the way you have to sort of consider it. I was, I was definitely super lucky. No kidding. Okay. So you're in this role with this call center and obviously your, your bilingual language skills have really played a part in helping you get to that point. It opened the door for sure. Definitely. And did you, when you entered that role, did you have much of a plan for how long you were going to do this or did you want to work your way up in that area or were you thinking maybe do this for a while and then look at teaching again? You know what? I don't think I had really thought about it. It's funny. Like, you know, I'm on the ride, you know, you, you pay your admission, you get on the ride and you're not really thinking about, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, you're on the roller coaster and it's like cranking and it's cranking and you're going up to the top of the hill. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not really thinking about what's going to happen. But no. See, I, you know what I find so interesting about that is I think that's so different for so many people because- for myself, like all my early jobs were contracts. So there was an end date to them. And so my first one was nine months, then a three-year contract. So I was like, okay, at the end of three years, what do I need to look for? So what do I need to do in the interim to prepare myself for that? And so there was always this deadline for me. I always knew when it was over and when I had to get to the next things. But I don't know, maybe that's just the difference between contract versus getting into that full-time role where I guess you're you're young and you're starting to make some money and you can now like live your life, which I know was, that was important to me. It just took a couple contracts to get to that point. Yeah. It's funny, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think you're totally right. I think because I had the luxury of being in a position where it was sort of an indefinite duration, I didn't have to think in those terms of like, you know, okay, 
you know, T minus eight months, T minus five months, you know, okay, this contract's up in three months. Have I talked to my supervisor? Yeah. Are they keeping me on? You know, do I have to start looking? I, I was sort of fortunate in the sense that I didn't really have to think about those things. So, you know, it's again, you know, luck plays a big role in that. But for me, when I was in, it was more learn the trade, learn what's going on, learn how to do your job well, and then just do your job. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, do your job so well because, you know, they're, they're going to be looking to get rid of you if you don't. It was definitely more of just get in there, you know how to speak French and that's like 90% of the job. And, you know, you, you just have to go in and, and every day try not to screw up too badly. Yeah, that's uh a luxury to have that be your biggest concern, not screw up too badly, right? Yeah, exactly right. Okay, so what was the kind of catalyst that set you off onto the next part of your career? Because I know you're not in that job now. No, no. So you know what is funny? So there came an opportunity about a year into that job um, for a similar type of role, but a more senior um, position. So it was still on the phone. You're still talking to customers. And one of, one of the neat things, and you know, I know call center jobs get like a really bad rep because people think of them as, you know, you're, you're there, you're on the phone, you're, you're really, you are being measured in a lot of ways you're going in, you know, your, your, your calls per hour are being measured, your, your customer satisfaction is being measured, all yeah. these little things that you have some control over, but you don't have as much control as you'd like. Yeah. Cause things can go off the rails. Just, you know, you pick up the call with the guy whose you know, wheel fell off his car that, you know, that's not going to go well. No yeah. That's no are. fun to deal with. No. So, you know, I think a lot of these calls jobs get like a bad rap, but anyway, I, I had done okay. And I, they, they offered, they had this sort of position available and I interviewed for it and I was lucky enough to get it. So it came with a bit of a raise. It came with sort of a, a, a bit more autonomy, a bit more responsibility. And so I did that for about another year. It wasn't fundamentally really all that different. It was sort of like, you know, you're, you're still picking up the phone. People are calling with questions. Just like the job you had at the next level. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was what I was doing and then just sort of a little bit more freedom, a little bit more pay, a little bit more responsibility, but nothing that was super different. So I, I ended up, I guess, in the call center for about two years as a guy that, you you know, if you had called, you dial that number, you could get me, hypothetically. Gotcha. Um, after that, and this is, uh, again, you know, it's a bit of a bit of luck. But I was actually approached by someone else in the company to go and interview for a position. And this was something off the phone, something totally unrelated. And I thought, I, I mean, I was super pumped. You know, I go in and I'm getting approached. And at this point, you know, you feel like you made it somehow. Right. You're like, I'm being headhunted. They chose me. Yeah, exactly. This was one of those things where you're being chosen. You're yeah. being, I'm being groomed. You know, look at me. I, <laughs> I've been there all of two years and, you know, they're, they're, they're grooming me. And I, you know, I interviewed and it went well and, you know, they told me it went well and I didn't end up getting the job. And at this point, you know, obviously you feel discouraged, you know, and I think a lot of people have had that. They, they've oh, gone yeah. in, you know, they've, they put their college try in, they've done their best and it doesn't work. And at this point I'm like, man, like you just shouldn't have approached me. I would have just gone sailing. Yeah. You're more like angry about it now. Yeah. That, like, because <laughs> now in your head. This is what I do, which kills me every time. I already have pictured what my life is like in that job and how different things will be. Are you that type of person? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's like when you're in the store and, you know, you're trying on the shoes and in your mind, they're your shoes. Yeah. You know what I mean? You like, walk around and you're like, these aren't comfortable. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't, and then, and then I don't want these shoes. Yeah. And so in my head, you know, and obviously this was just because of my expectations. It wasn't the reality. But in my head, I was like, you know, oh, I've got this job. I'm, 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 I'm doing such a good job in this interview. And, you know, they told me after, oh, you did great. And I don't get it. And it took a little while, you know, I'm not going to lie. Um, it's not that, you know, I've never failed at anything in my life. And this was the first time I failed. I failed so much, but uh, this was one of those moments where I was like, man, like, 
this sucks. Yeah. You know, so it actually wound up being a good thing. And it's funny because maybe three or four months later, I've been approached, you know, I've, I've licked my wounds, I've gotten over it. And another position comes up. This is something a bit more like a, like a people leader type position. Okay. So, you know, it's something where you have like probably eight or 10 people who are doing the phone center thing and your job is sort of help them do their normal day-to-day stuff. When customer, you know, the, the people who say, I want to talk to your manager, you know, they would get me. Right. Um, okay. You know, for better and for worse, <laughs> I'd be the, the voice at the end of that line. So, yeah, so, th- so that came up. And, you know, had I gotten that other position, the one that I was so upset about losing, obviously I couldn't have switched into this sort of people leader position. But, uh, yeah, it opened up and it was, it was fortuitous and I interviewed and this time I did well again. But, you know, I wasn't sure. You know, I'd been burned once, but it worked out actually. Okay, great. So you finally got to that next level that you were looking at and failure plays a part in that because did you find you were like humbled after the first one not working out or were you just angry? I've been both. So, I mean, I've (laughs) seen both sides where something doesn't work out and then how did you, you know, what was the the drive? Was it more humbling or more anger? Which are, they're both real emotions people feel whenever stuff like this happens. You know what? And I think, I think it was definitely more on the anger side. Okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't because, it wasn't because I thought, you know, I'm so good. How could they not do this? It wasn't because of that at all. It was Mm -hmm. more because I was approached and it was like, you know, you, you sort of poke the bear and get him to follow you. And it's like, well, no honey for you, you know, mm-hmm. you go in and you, you sort of, you would have just gone your and done your own thing. And because of that, so I came in, I wouldn't say like I went in and carrying a lot of anger or anything, but, um, you know, I, I definitely, when I went into this interview, um, it wasn't, it wasn't like resentful or anything like that, but there was definitely, you know, you, you sort of come in a little bit wiser. You sort of know like yeah. at the end of it. No matter how well you do, you can only control that. You can't really control yes. the fact that someone else is going to do maybe a better job on their interview and have better skills than you do, right? So, yeah, 100%, right? Like you've already visualized yourself being the right candidate or whatever your shortcomings are. You just think, well, you know, but they wanted me so they can get over this. But you don't realize there's somebody more experienced out there who's maybe already gone through what you're going through right now. Exactly and right. they're the right person at the right time. So, and anyway, so it works out for you. So it works out. You're what, two and a half years in at this company and you're already on your third job. I'm on my third job. And at this point, it's totally different. So the, the, the neat thing when you're doing this type of phone center work, when you're on the phones, I mean, you're sort of, you're with the customer, you're talking to them, but you're sort of in control in some sense, because at the end of the day, you know, you have certain privileges, you have certain power and you use that power to make whatever you need to have happen, happen. When you're like a people leader, you're sort of like one step removed. Mm-hmm. And so you're not actually doing any of the stuff with the customer. You can sort of like try to guide them, but it's almost like the difference between, you know, the the the, the conductor at the front of the orchestra. He's not playing any instrument. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to keep everyone sort of in time. Right. Yeah. Your, your issue now is dealing with the people at the company who are dealing with the customer. Yes. And it's funny because I had come out of this sort of mentality where it's like, oh, well, you just got to improve your skill and you just got to do it better. I was not at all good at this people leader position, especially at the start. Yeah. Um, I was putting my foot in my mouth pretty much nonstop. (laughs) Um, I I don't think I had realized to what degree your words carried sort of a meaning Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, if if someone's doing a bad job or, you know, if someone has a bad day and something goes off the rails, you really have to approach it with sort of a, a, a sensitivity. 
that I just had no idea. And they can't train you for that. You know what I no. mean? No. And like, there's a, just an experience level to that, right? I've been in the same boat where yeah. I was like, oh, I look back, I'm like, I can't believe I did that or said that when like with the wisdom of years of other experiences, I can look back and say like, oh no, like how did I not recognize that that was not the right thing to do or say to that person at that time? Exactly right. And that's the type of thing where, you know, an emotional maturity would have been, would have been good. Yeah. Um, the good thing for me is that I, I sort of picked it up after a while, you know, you have a couple of moments, you know, thankfully my, my team was pretty forgiving. They understood, you know, maybe, uh, his heart's in the right place, even if sometimes he's able to put his, his mouth in all the wrong places. Um, (laughs) I mean, I guess the phrasing on that wasn't great, but no, I, I know what you mean. And, you know, I think the, that's probably something that most people are going to experience at some point, regardless of what their job is. Like there's a level of, of when you are, you know, young and inexperienced, like you're going to make mistakes. It's just going to happen. It's exactly right. That's so cliche, but like, it's how you learn from those and move forward that matters. Yeah. And well, you know what? The but other it th- is. It's true. And, yeah. and I was very fortunate as well that my boss at that time um, was super encouraging and, Definitely was able to provide a lot of guidance. Yeah. So it was, you know, he, he understood that I was someone who was new to this type of role. And I learned sort of quickly, like, maybe it'd be a good idea to sort of use him as a sounding board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I learned so much there. And I think it's funny, like, you know, when you're talking about, oh, I want to be a manager and people get this idea in their head, you know, like, I got to be a manager. I got to be someone who's in charge. And if I'm not in charge, then I failed in my career and I'm not doing what I want to do. But I think what comes with that is a lot of these type of people managing things and they don't realize, you know, it's not all about having the power. It's also about, you know, letting people make mistakes in their job without, you know, freaking out at them. Mm -hmm. It's about sort of approaching people and trying to meet them on their terms. And, And that's the type of thing that I think, you know, people, when they focus on the title of a position, don't necessarily realize. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I know like the success bar is, you know, the, if I get to a VP, if I get to whatever, um, I've made it. But for a lot of people, I think, you know, if they're the type of person who hates dealing with people and they get really upset when, you know, someone lets them down or they get really upset when, you know, they're, they're going in and someone who you've told a thousand times how to do it the right way goes and does it the wrong way for the thousand and one time, if they can't live with that. And, you know, it stresses them, then those types of roles are, are really, really hard. Yeah, definitely. So, so you're in that role, you start learning and getting better as time goes on. Yes. And then what's the catalyst for the next change? Yeah. So I mentioned that my boss at this time was like super supportive and I, it's funny. So I, I know for a lot of managers when they find someone who does a pretty good job, I'm not going to say I was, you know, the, the, knocking it out of the park or anything, but when someone does a pretty good job, they try to keep them. Yeah. And sometimes that's good for the person who's being kept. Sometimes this may be better for the manager, but not so good for that person. Right. This guy was, uh, you know, this boss of mine was someone who was so supportive and wasn't really thinking necessarily about if I get rid of this guy and, you know, he moves on somewhere else in the company, my department's going to be a bit less efficient. I can't let him leave. He was thinking this is someone who is learning a lot, someone who probably would learn from being in a different place. And he sort of encouraged me and, and almost, I wouldn't say actively <laughs> shot me around or anything, but when opportunities came up, 
he was pretty vocal about, you know, you should consider this or, you know, I, I see you in this type of role in the future. So this is someone who was a very good mentor for me. And in any case, what ended up happening was there was, um, I, I was sort of in the finance wing and there was a job opportunity that came up sort of in a completely different part of the company. So sort of in the sales wing. And these are totally different. This is no longer like a customer facing job. You're no longer talking to people. Now you're dealing with the sales, meaning that you're not looking at one customer buying one car. You're looking at the province of Quebec buying 20,000 cars. Okay. You know, so you're no longer in the same mentality at all. You're, you've mm-hmm. sort of shifted context completely. And so this is, this all comes about because a mentor pushes you for it. It wasn't something where you were like, I want to do that next. Somebody else says, I think you'd be good for that. You should go for it. Exactly right. So again, this is one of those, you know, sort of lucky timing type things. Yeah. So I'd been doing that team, uh, you know, the, the sort of the people manager position for, for a few years. And at this point, like I said, this boss sort of encouraged me and it sort of worked out really well, actually. There was just a lot of different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, the stakes were a little bit higher. So you're not really talking about one team because the, the bottom line is, you know, people are going to go and, you know, on a one-to-one, even if you do really badly with one particular person as a customer, yeah, it's one customer. Yeah. You right. know, your, your level of impact can only be so big. And for the person who you're dealing with, it's the world. And yes. I don't think you can disregard that. You can't say, well, it's only one person who gives a, you know. But one person buys one car and a province buys 20,000 cars. Yeah. It was just sort of like a totally different context. And right. what was sort of interesting is that at that point, you know, what I had thought were, you know, big potatoes, it was just totally, totally shifted. It, it wasn't, it wasn't that the other job became less important or I looked at it as like something, you know, oh, I can't believe I did that for three years and I thought it was important. No, but every everything is like a development, right? Like you try something and then you want to try something else. And especially if a mentor is telling you, you should do this, like, I think you'd be good for this. That makes you feel probably like, oh, I should definitely look at this. Even yeah. if you're comfortable where you are, I think that's my experience anyway. When a mentor says to you something is a good fit and you should consider it. And because most of those mentors are trying to push you to go and and advance your career and, and get a better job, which either is is because they think you should have more responsibility would benefit the company or because they'd be happy for you to go get the get a role with more pay or benefits or whatever it is. Like there's many different reasons, but it's nice when you get that kind of push from someone. Yeah. And it was, for me at least, um, it went well. You know, I started and I, I was working there in this sort of sales role for I guess it was about eight months or something like that. And, you know, at this point, I'm not going to lie, I showed up day one and everyone was off and they were doing, I guess, you know, because the sales is national. Um, I think they were maybe in Vancouver or something like that. So I show up to my first day in this new job and literally the entire department's gone. Empty. Empty, literally empty. Like all the desks are gone. And yeah. I'm like, oh, like what, what's happening? And there was like maybe one or two people there and they were like, oh yeah, everyone's gone. They're all like in Vancouver. And I'm like, okay, like what should I do? And they're like, uh... I don't know if you got any email. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I had the same thing happen on my first day at a job where my boss was off dealing with an issue. And so I forgot I had parked in meter parking because they were supposed to give me my parking pass. I got a parking ticket on my first day because oh they were my. busy dealing with other stuff and could not uh, help me out. It was like, here's this binder. Just start reading it, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, what was really different too is, you know, all my previous jobs, there was almost like some training documents. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're in the type of position where you're, you're giving direct answers to people. There's a how-to guide, you know, yeah, for this yeah. type of question, you give this type of answer. For this type of thing, it's, it's, I'm not going to say that it's, 
you know, draw penciling the lines or color. But there's a guide. There's a guide. Yeah. There's some sort of a document. Something you can, you can follow. To. And if you need to find the answer, you can look it up and, yeah. you know, make your wording sound like what the answer should be. And at the worst, you know, in the worst case, when you're looking at it, you know, when you're there and there's no one in the office, at least you can sort of have this document up on your computer screen to make it look yeah. like, you know, you know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there was nothing like this at this new role, right? It, it's something totally different. Is it a brand new type of position or what was it? that? It wasn't, it wasn't a new position, but I think what it was is that it was a very ad hoc type of role, right? Because oh. what it was, was that when there was like you know, a, a region because the way they had divided the country up, it was different regions would request cars. Um, and if a region had an issue, they would come to you and be like, you know, what, and regardless of what the issue was, it could be something as simple as, you know, we need more red cars. It could right. be something like, you know, we have too many red cards, get rid of some of these red cards. Does someone else need them or something yeah, yeah. like that? So it would be very ad hoc. There would be no. You're waiting on them to come to you with problems so that you can help solve those problems. Exactly right. And until you get a certain amount of exposure to the people that you're going to be working with, they don't really think of you as a resource that they can tap. Right. So what I found was until I actually had an opportunity to start communicating, and this is where, you know, I mentioned a bit earlier, but this whole fraternity thing where you're sort of used to sort of build these relationships mm -hmm. until I was able to sort of do that, I wasn't really much used to, to anyone in any capacity, you know, they, they were sort of, I was, you know, an answer without a question. Yeah. Yeah. So did it feel at first, maybe like a, almost like a, a wrong decision to take that role? Did you have any regrets? I don't think I had regrets. It was definitely a change of pace though. Okay. Cause I went, you know, from a job where people have a question they ask you and it's sort of like, you know, very fast paced. Well, call centers are busy. They're so All busy. the time. People there work hard. And oh I yeah. Think it's, it's one of those things. It's almost like call of duty or something where like nonstop things are happening and you're like just so immersed and yeah. you're, you're like in there. And then the other one's almost more like a chess game and you know, there's still a strategy to it. There's still a skill, still a technique, but you're not going and, you know, zipping all over the place. You're more thinking like, okay, if I do this, what happens next? If that happens, this happens. Yeah. And you're sort of thinking in a totally different way. Okay. Yeah. So one, I'm glad you made a video game reference. That's fantastic. <laughs> I didn't get one of those, I think in my other interview so far, but now I'm going to try and fit one into every interview. If the, yeah. if the interviewee doesn't make one, I'll try and make one. It's <laughs> exactly. going to be my new thing. If you were Mario or Luigi, who do you pick? There you go. You yes. Know. Those will be the type of questions I send to people in advance now. questions. Yeah. We want to get to the bottom <laughs> of this. Which Mario brother are you? Yes. Okay, so how long did it really take for that role to feel like you were totally up to speed and, and knew how to do the whole job? Well, it's funny. So I don't think that ever happened. Okay. Um, because, like I said, about eight months I was in that role and, that, you know, sort of about eight months in, I was approached and they had asked me, are you okay to work abroad for a year? And okay. at this point, you know, in my personal life, I'd been married about six months. And so it wasn't really like a foregone conclusion that this would be cool with my wife. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as simple as like you're young and single and you're like, yeah, I'll do it. Sure. Yeah. And There's it's things it, to consider now. Well, it, I think because it was sort of new to this role, they hadn't, and you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my, my direct supervisor that was sort of asking me. It was sort of like a guy a bit higher up who, I guess, you know, he he looked at the different people and I don't think he necessarily knew that I was married or that I'd just been married uh, when he asked me, but uh, anyway, I approached my wife and she was totally on board. She very supportive. And I, obviously I wouldn't have been able to do it without that level of support and without her, you know, being okay with it. Cause a year is, you know, it's, I, I used to call it like the shortest long time or the longest short time. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. not really, it's sort of like in between. 
Because, you know, like a month is not that long. Right. You can look at a month and you can be like, yeah, a month is not that bad. But a year is sort of like, it's long enough to be like, eh. Yeah. But it's not so long where you're like, oh, this is going to screw my life completely if I make a mistake. Yeah. And I think it's whenever you know what the, the end goal is, like there, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, it's not this indefinite thing where there's all these questions around it. You know that in a year, you're done. One way or the other. You yeah. Know, either, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> either you're done or they're making you done. Yeah, exactly. Either the job is done or I am. But one way or the other, you know, at the end of a year, it's, it's, yeah. it's finished. So I know I would be remiss to now point out that given all these French language skills you have, it seems like from the outside, you probably ended up working in France. But I know that's not what happened. That is not what happened. I got sent to Japan. Totally new experience. Totally new experience. So obviously my French language skills were not that handy in Japan. Yes. Um, and it's funny. I think there were a few things to working in Japan. So obviously, you know, if, if anyone gets that opportunity, definitely you should consider it. It's such a different place. Yeah. It's so different. It's obviously when you're, when you're visiting and, you know, I, I had actually, I'd been lucky enough to visit Japan previously sort of as a tourist. My father and I went to sort of a university uh, graduation present. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So we, we'd been there before, probably about four three or four years before this opportunity came up, you know, we, we had sort of had this type of a tourist knowledge of Japan, mm-hmm. but working and living in a different country is very different, I think, from visiting. And so it's so different. It's, it's funny, like all the tourist stuff is true. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of really cool amenities, a ton of really cool stuff to visit. All that stuff is true, but just getting used to a different culture and sort of like an office setting is, is funny. All those little things that you think, you know, they're, they're universal, you know, when I, when I act a certain way or if I, if I'm in a meeting and a certain thing is happening, I understand what's happening. I know what's going on. And then you get put into this country and all of a sudden, all the things that you thought were sort of like an unspoken, unwritten language are no longer, you're, you're not talking the same unspoken language, let alone the same written or like, you know, yeah. So like, I imagine there are certain things like a wave is a wave everywhere. Yes. But what, what are some of the examples of the things that you had to kind of navigate in that workplace? So one thing that's like sort of weird, I guess, especially for like a North American person is that someone in a meeting can just sort of close their eyes and look almost like they're sleeping. Yeah. You know, they sort of got their eyes closed or lean back in their chair. They're, they're very relaxed in terms of their body language. And then that same guy, you're doing your presentation and he will hit you with like the most precise, like, it's not that he hasn't been paying attention. He has totally been paying attention to the point where he's focused. So focused. In my eyes, like I'm in North America, if someone closes their eyes during a meeting, I'm like, maybe this guy went a little late. Yeah. You know, he's not feeling so sharp. This was not at all the case. And the first few times that happened, it blew my mind. I had come in with the assumption. And like I said, everyone has that sort of cultural baggage. Yeah. I, I sort of assume that like this is a guy who's, you know, he's been to the karaoke bar or something's gone on. Maybe right. he has, but it wasn't that at all. Yeah. So a very different workplace. Definitely. Very different. And I think another thing that's sort of different, and I could talk about Japan all day and hopefully you won't let me, but. Um, that, I've, I've had you tell me about it other times because <laughs> I was planning a trip to Japan. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I will continue to get more advice from you at a future date, but. For, for today. Yes, exactly. For I'll today. To stay focused. On the career side of things. On the career side of things. Um, one of the things I found was that people are so attentive to detail. And what I mean by that is not like, you know, 
people are making sure there's no typos in their emails. I mean, that's sort of a given no matter where they are, but what was interesting? You would think that, except that if, did you notice the like seven typos in the email I sent you? Because I did after I sent it. So <laughs> I just, you know, I, I go sort of like the take your fist and sort of bash the keyboard until some words come out. Yeah, approach. exactly. Big fingers. So yeah, what am I going to yeah. do? <laughs> exactly. I'm similarly uh, challenged. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, no. So, you know, it, it goes beyond that. But like, for example, you're in a presentation and the order of the names is not alphabetical. It's done by order of seniority. Oh, okay. You're at dinner with people. And, you know, in, in North America, if you go to dinner with colleagues, everyone sort of sits at whatever spot they sit at. You know, no one, no one's doing a seating arrangement there. It is not only a seating arrangement. Um, I went actually to like a karaoke bar. And because of the person we were with at that time was like particularly important and they didn't really have an opportunity to visit our department very often. So they were sort of... We, we wouldn't really have a lot of opportunities to make a good impression. Um, we'd go to karaoke and they literally not only had a seating chart for where everyone would sit, they actually had like a set list for the karaoke. So what do you think is like the pressure on the person <laughs> who has to do the seating chart and set list? Like you can't make a mistake on that. Well, you know what, what the good and bad of it is that the rules are very clear. Okay. So it's not as though they're sort of shooting in the dark and you know, you, you, there's landmines everywhere and yeah. you don't know where you're going to step. Um, there, there's some rules to it, yeah. but I think the mentality there is, you know, when you're in a business role, you're literally in a role. You have your lines, you know, they have their lines. We're in a role, we're playing a part. The, the, the opportunity for being independently minded, you know, in the way that we think of in North America, where you can show up and you can do whatever you want, mm -hmm. how you want, as long as you're getting your job done. It's not really the way they do things there. So- would you say you're like a cog in a machine? Um, I don't know if I'd go that far. I'd think okay. like, you know, I think that's maybe like the stereotype, you know, like the salary man of the guy who shows up and like, you know, works for 14 hours, goes home. Like, you know, I, I don't think it would go that extreme. I would think more that people are more focused maybe on like the small things that they can change. Okay. Rather than sort of raging against the machine, you know, in the way that people hear, where it's like, you know, that's not technically in my job. Oh, I yeah. don't have to do that. You know, I'm part of a union. There's definitely people who've said that before. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it's not a better or worse thing. It's just sort of like a different mentality. Yeah. Because, yeah, people there, I think, you know, it, whether it's part of your job or not is sort of second to the point is, you know, they're paying you to be there. They've asked you to do a certain thing. And, you know, in, in that culture, it would be seen as totally normal to, to be asked. You know, I remember, for example, um, there was a, another big meeting, there was an important speaker that was going to be up at the podium and they had not just me, but they had my manager, my senior manager, all of us came out literally to measure the height of the podium and to make sure that like it was the right distance. Cause he had had some comments, some issues earlier about like a teleprompter being the wrong place. You couldn't see it properly, but in North America, you'd be like, that's not my job. Like I'll just send the, the things over to the people who do that and they'll figure it out. But here it was like, no, no, no. Like I've been told make sure that this is set a certain way. And now you've got to be the one to do it. You're responsible. Yeah. You're going to be the one to do it. And it's not a question of, is it my job or is it not my job? It's like, I've been asked, make sure of this thing. So I'm going to go and make sure of this thing. And I'm not just going to take me, I'm going to take the people above me who are also going to be responsible for making sure this is done the right way. So. Okay. So a year of trying to understand, navigate all these differences. Yes. And in, you know, like you said, one way or the other, you're coming back in a year and, and that's, that's what happened, right? Right. It did. So I spent a year there. Um, it, I'm not going to lie. There was definitely a bit of stress towards the end. Cause for the first time 
I was maybe in sort of your shoes where we're talking about your landing spot is sort of undefined, right? Mm. So obviously when I left my previous position to leave for Japan, um, it wasn't like you were just transferred for a year. Like no, my old job was gone. So I was doing it. Someone had to do that other job. Oh, you took the leap. I took the leap. So I'm there and you know, when you're in there, um, for that first nine months, is very easy because you know sort of where you're at. And then when you're approaching the end of your contract, like you said, it's not easy because it's like, I'm going back. I don't know what I'm going back to. Right. And I know, and and we can cut this part out if you don't want this in, but didn't you buy a house while you were over there too in Toronto? I did. So you're coming back to a mortgage now too. I've got a mortgage and uh, actually the the whole story of that is Oh, I remember the flying back and forth. That was chaos for you. I think I was out of Tokyo for something like 90 hours in total. Just to come sign some paperwork. Yeah. And that's like from like my plane leaving Tokyo to my plane landing back in Tokyo. So I think I like took a third, uh, maybe not even, I left Thursday night, took off the Friday and I was back in the office on Monday. That's chaos. (laughs) With no no pattern of sleep at all, I imagine for a few days there. I, I, the good thing is because I was only gone for like two days, I didn't have like jet lag. Yeah. And it was, once we were back home, well, at Japan, which would have been home at the time, everything was fine. But I imagine uh, being in Toronto at noon was not so much fun. No. And you know what, because I was only, you know, this is in the middle of a year where I'm abroad. I had like a stacked social calendar. I was, I was visiting all these people. I was, I was pretty much finished by the end of it. Yeah. So, you know, the good thing is, you know, you're finished, you go into the office and you do some work for a week and then it's, it's not so bad. You sort of get back into your groove. But right, uh, right. yeah. So anyway, so when I was coming back um, and this time permanently, not for that sort of weekend to buy a house, but you're, you're sort of, like you said, you have a mortgage, you have responsibilities. You you know, you have a job because, you know, they wouldn't just send you there and then sort of cut the rug from under you. It wouldn't really yeah. make sense for them either. So, you know, you have a job, but you don't know what it's going to be. And you're sort of just in this weird in-between space. And anyway, um, it was funny. So when I was in Japan, I had sort of worked in a bunch of different departments. And I guess one of the departments I had worked with was sort of in line with like creating products and things like that. And so when I landed, because I had had that experience in Japan, I sort of wound up working in that group when I came back here. So it, it sort of worked out really well because sometimes... There'd have to be sort of conversations and dialogue between, you know, our country and their country and to figure stuff out or they'd have questions, you know, because obviously the climate in Canada is different. And so, you know, having those types of connections and actually having met some of the people on the other end of that email, um, it it was super, super useful. Now, when you say climate, do you mean like the work political climate or do you mean like the physical climate? Like we have salt on our roads and that will damage vehicles. I think it's literally both. Okay. It's funny. Like, um, (laughs) you don't really think of it, but like, there's almost like an unspoken understanding of how to phrase questions. Gotcha. In different cultures. Yeah. And in English, you know, you might phrase a question a certain way. In French, you'd phrase it a different way. And in like sort of the English to Japanese, you sort of have to be very conscious of certain things as well, right? And you have to sort of know, okay, if I ask this it's going to create this type of an impact. If I ask it maybe a different way, it's going to have more of what I'm intending as sort of a consequence as like as an answer coming back. So it it was sort of really useful having had that experience overseas because, you know, not only do you sort of understand where they're coming from, like as people and just sort of their lived experience, Mm -hmm. like, you know, when you, when you send them an email and you get a response within like 15 minutes and it's like, 
10.30 p.m. there. Here, you may be, you get that email, you're like, oh, he's working late. Like, that's a bit weird, but whatever, you know. That's, mm-hmm. But when you actually live there and you've worked at that desk and you know that these guys are, you know, working so hard and doing all these things, you sort of get a, a much better appreciation, I guess, for sort of what's going on on their side and to yeah. understand them as like a person. Yeah. Okay. So you come back and would you saying it's like product development, the new role? Yeah, something Product like development, that. something like that. Now, is that the same thing you're in now? No. So I did that for about a year. And okay. you know, you'll see a pattern. I mean, yeah, I, I you don't know if I'm... <laughs> short jumps between jobs. <laughs> I'm jumping all over and I, I wish I could say that I was getting like substantial pay raises at each point. I'm not. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Maybe that's like a little ding, you know, it's, uh, I know a lot of people change roles because, you know, it offers better compensation. That's not really what I was after, but basically, um, when I came back, um, you know, I'd worked in this sort of product role and another department had sort of spoken with me. And at this point, you know, I've been with the company for a few years. I have sort of, because I've moved around um, a number of times, I, I've worked with people from all over. And, and and sort of the cool thing is they move as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've left a good impression on like, you know, the five or 10 people that you work with in every role that you're working, um, when those people move, I mean, you know, if you've done a good job and you're, you know, you're pretty reasonable to work with, that sort of spreads as well. So by this point, um, even though I didn't really have any particular experience with it. I was, I was asked to sort of head, um, a sort of project just to get sort of like the customer opinion. Okay. And the idea behind this was basically, you know, we're, we're, we're selling stuff to people, people are experiencing it in a certain way. Um, and as a consumer, you know, we, we, it's hard for a company to understand, like, you know, what are the good things? What are the bad things? And it was really sort of like to get an idea from like a customer level, what's going on. So this is sort of like a side project that I didn't really understand or really hadn't had much experience in beforehand. But over the course of that, like few months I was working on that project, it sort of got more and more involved. And then sort of at the end of it, I was almost presented with like a a choice, you know, like, are you thinking of continuing with this? Or are you thinking about staying with that? And that's sort of where, um, you know, I had to, I had to make a call and I sort of had to transition to like sort of a new role. Fantastic. That's great because you've identified an obvious career crossroad for you, which is the yeah. name of this. Hey, there we and go. I'm trying to hit one every episode. <laughs> I got to hit one moment where people say this or this. And depending yeah. on what you do, you could end it up in a different spot. Yeah, it's funny. So, you know, like I said, given my, my history, I don't think I really had a fear of change. I guess not. We're talking about like six different jobs in six years or something like that from what, from my count. Yeah. 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 I think, I think you're about right. Um, yeah, about six different roles and, you know, a few sub roles within that too, but, um, no, I haven't, I haven't really had a fear of change, but I think what sort of drove me here was the opportunity for something new. And I think at almost every stage, um, sort of the constant, you know, amid all this change and, you know, there's been a lot of it, but the constant has been, not not have I learned everything that I can learn in, in a role, because I think a lot of people get like, you know, I don't know everything yet. I don't think you'll ever reach that point. I, I think for most, you know, if you don't learn everything, I don't take it as a failure. I take it as like, you, you've learned enough, you sort of get an idea. And if you really wanted to focus on something, I mean, by the time you've learned everything, a whole bunch of stuff's changed and you got to go back and, and redo mm. it. So for me, it's never been like an obstacle as like, you know, if you don't know everything, you're not doing it right. But um, when I when I was presented with this new role, it was sort of like an opportunity for something totally different. Now it's something more web-based. And what's sort of interesting is that I did this maybe a couple months before COVID. 
And obviously with, with things being shut down and things being a bit more online based, the timing was sort of fortuitous. No kidding. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally jumping around from like one field to another, to another. And it's, yeah. so that brings us to the current day. It sounds like that's where day, you're at yes. now. Exactly and right. so what I'm hearing from all of these things is either you were being pushed by somebody else or approached about other roles in a lot of cases where people are coming to you or, or saying to you, you should, you'd be a good fit for this. You should take a look at it. And in pretty much every case that you've mentioned, you said yes, and you went for it. Yeah. So, and this, you know, I, I know I've talked about it a few times, but I think when I look back and, you know, it's nowhere near the finish line or anything like that, but when I look back to the, up, up to now, at least, um, my, I think my, my sort of constant has been not a technical knowledge. I don't think, you know, obviously you have to go in and you have to sort of understand what you're doing. Otherwise you're going to be totally, um, <laughs> you're going to have some trouble anyway, but it hasn't been that I was the guy who knew the most. I've never been the guy in the room. That's the smartest guy, you know, the guy that knows the most stuff about the most things. It, it's never really been about that. It's more been, and I think, you know, that this is sort of a constant, but if you can build good relationships with people, if you can be someone that's easy to work with, someone where, you know, if they have a problem, they know that you're not going to be leaving and being mm -hmm. like, you know, that's not my job. I, I think that it sort of opens up some doors for you. Because in a lot of cases, you know, and this is not just true in my job, but even when I was, you know, working uh, with the town and, and doing sort of that city job or when I was like a student, um, there were people who were brilliant. And they knew so much and they were, I mean, man, they were, they were getting better. They passed the calculus course, you know, they, they got yeah. through it, but it, it's more that working with them could be difficult. And I think for me, at least, I think one of the, one of the things where I've been lucky is that I've always had a sort of environment where I'm able to sort of make connections with people. And I think that's really made a difference. Great. Now, do you ever look back and think, what if I had been good at calculus? Where would I be now? You know what? It's funny. I, I'm sure I would have probably like wound some way or another back into this type of, maybe not this industry or, you know, I, I probably would have had a similar trajectory in the sense that I've always been sort of open to changing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I was lucky in that like my parents sort of made me try at least to some degree, you know, they, they put like a good work ethic and, you know, I, I think I've been, I've been lucky in that way. I've been sort of well, well drilled <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think that's something that uh, maybe maybe 20 years from now, I'll do like a follow-up to this series where yes. I'll come back and see where everyone is now and talk about if they've kind of rounded off back to what they thought they were going to be at some point. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, hopefully in 20 years, uh, maybe maybe retired, who knows, but... Uh... Yeah, definitely in 20 years. I mean, <laughs> we're well millennials, so it's not like we're retiring in our mid-30s. That's not no, happening. No, 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 that's not happening. Not with the Toronto Housing. No, goodness, no, you yeah. know, but no, I think, um, I think for me and, and for a lot of people, if they focus on learning everything and doing everything perfectly, it's almost beside the point. I think whenever you're approaching a situation, you know, maybe in the back of my head, it's always like, you know, is this, is this the hill I want to die on? Hmm. You know, if someone comes up to me and, you know, there, there's an issue or there's some type of a, something's going on. And you have every right to be upset. You have every right to, you know, freak out because, you know, what the heck, you know, I've told you this and you gave me that or whatever the situation is. Um, I think approaching it with, you know, okay, like here's where we are today. We can't fix the rest of it. But I think 
you know, going with the approach of let's just figure this thing out makes you easier to work with. And I think being easy to work with is in a lot of cases, almost like the main job qualification. That's a, that's, that is some good advice for, for people. (laughs) The only advice I'll give, the only advice I'm qualified to give, but. uh, Perfect. Yeah. You know, don't be a jerk. All right. That's great. (laughs) Final thoughts from you. I like it. Um, Corey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, like I said, it's, it's a bit of a cautionary tale maybe, but, uh, no, I, I really enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was fun to look back and I hope, uh, I hope this thing goes for a long while and you get an opportunity to, to follow up in, in a few years and we'll see where I'm at. Sounds good. So that was Corey and listening to what he had to say, there's a few things that I want to reflect on. And the first of which is that Corey is a man of many analogies. He talked about the roller coaster cranking up the track. He talked about conductors and symphonies. And my favorite analogy, he talked about Call of Duty versus a chess game. That man can certainly string some words together. I sent him a text message to tell him he used a lot of analogies, and his only response was, uh-oh. But don't worry, Corey, I think they were all appropriate for the situations you were talking about. Now, the one thing wrong with Corey's interview was that he thinks it might be a cautionary tale. And really, we all know that he was joking about that. How can this be a cautionary tale? He didn't have six jobs in six years because he was a bad employee. He was very clearly good at what he was doing. And Corey brought up luck a lot in his interview. And maybe there was some luck along the way. Walking into that first job interview at the call center and the company suddenly needing a full-time role instead of a contract role like he had applied for, I can agree that maybe there's some luck to that. But once he was in, He worked hard, and people noticed, and then they came to him and told him to apply for other roles within the company. Now, those didn't pan out every single time, but with one of the instances where it did pan out, he ended up in Japan for a year, and I'm thrilled he got that experience, but that excitement is also balanced out by an unhealthy dose of jealousy, but that's more of a me problem. One of the best lines he had in that interview comes from right near the end. And when I was editing, I wrote it down and circled it. Corey said that you can't learn everything in a job, but you can learn enough. I like that line of thinking, and I agree with it. Sometimes you get what you need from a job, and then you move on. I never outright asked Corey if moving around so much bothered him in any way, given that at the very beginning of the interview, it sounded like he was looking for stability in his life. But that just goes to show you how much we can change from high school until your early 30s. I don't know about you, but it didn't sound to me like Corey was unhappy with what he's been doing. The reason he stayed with one company so long is because he keeps finding new exciting roles that he likes. And in this era where it seems like you have to jump around to get a better job or better pay so regularly, somehow he's found a way to stay within the same company for all this time and experience all these different things. And those are all my thoughts on Corey's interview. So that's all for this week's episode, and I will see you next week for another interview with my friend Rachel.